Welcome to This Week in Photo. Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. For a free 14-day trial, go to Squarespace.com slash TWIP and be sure to check out their annual plans for savings of up to 20% off. This week on TWIP, rumor and speculation around Apple's iCloud. Nikon sues Sigma over VR patents, and Twitter unveils photo and video sharing. It's Saturday, June 4th, 2011, and this is TWIP. Welcome back to TWIP, your weekly helping of photographic inspiration. I am your host, Frederick Van Johnson, and joining me today on the show are Mr. Alex Lindsay, Steve Simon, and Ron Brinkman with two N's. Hey, guys. It's like old home week here, isn't it? <laughs> it's like... Yo, yo, yo. It's the Breakfast Club. Back. It's the Breakfast Club. <laughs> oh, jeez. I don't know how to quit, you guys. Oh, <laughs> okay, I, oh I gotta, no. So Sorry. I don't know how to quit you. All right. Uh, so, Alex, I want to start with you because you haven't been on in a while. Steve, either. But, Alex, I know you've been over in Japan. What, what were you doing over there? Uh, so, we, we, uh, you know, we do live streaming. So, we were doing some live streaming for Salesforce.com um, in uh, Tokyo. Uh, we did, did a couple streams, one with a Toyota announcement and then one with one of their general uh, cloud forces. And so, we were over there for a couple days. I was over there for a couple days. And then, and then I was then speaking in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. Uh, on extending the classroom with uh, video streaming tools um, cool. for e-learning Africa, and so I was in Dar es Salaam for about a oh, almost a week, and then and then I was in DC last week uh, to do another stream for Salesforce.com. So we um, uh, so we we were in I was in DC, and then and then I got home uh, last night. Did you look up our friend Tyler Ginter while you were in DC? You know, I didn't. I should have. I but my whole thing. The problem with these these productions is I have these dreams of of looking up all my friends. And um and I never get you know we're always just jammed you know we didn't like, we, Alex, we never Alex never calls Alex never calls he never calls uh, he lives well, in the Bay Area like, with me he never he never calls we live in the same same area of the country so you know it's it's one of those things like it's trying to like I can we did a Pixelcore meetup at Dukum which is a great Ethiopian restaurant in uh in DC one of the best mm. and um so that was about the uh, as much as I was able to get together with folks was just to have a Pixelcore meetup which I'm going to try to do more often because they're so much fun. Very cool. And also on the show, you heard his voice, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Steve Simon. Hey, Steve. Hey, guys. Good where, to be here. Where back. have you been? You've been, every time we talk to you, 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 you've done a dotted line, like a little Indiana Jones thing around the planet. Where, where have well, you been? Well, I, I haven't really been traveling too much of late. I was in Chicago uh, not too long ago doing uh, these Nikonians workshops that I've been uh, Yeah, doing how, the, how are those going? They're great. I'm, I'm learning a lot. Because I have <laughs> wait, to know aren't you bit. teaching them? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have to know a little bit more than the students, but you know, at every you just have to keep every, one chapter ahead, and you're good. Exactly, exactly. But at every stop, I I get a little nugget, and I'm you know learning these things. So no, it's been it's been a great experience. And other than that, I've been uh, close to home. I'm I'm writing a couple of books, and one of them is almost finished. The the passionate photographer for Peach Pit, awesome. which I I hope will be out in the next few months. So I'm kind of excited about that. Very cool. What's the other one? Uh, the other one is Steve Simon's Nikon Dream System. 
And that one's uh, that's for that is not narcissistic at all, Steve. <laughs> I, I got to tell you, that is like, <laughs> hey, we can have dreams, can't we? And I have, Steve I have a lot. Simon, of, that's awesome. Anyway, I'm I'm doing that one. That one's a pretty comprehensive one. I'm I'm a little uh, behind uh, on deadline on that, but I'm I'm working uh, to try and try and get it done. That's a that's a common refrain, Steve. You're I think you like that. Because you're always working on a book, and you're always just a little bit behind, so you stay on edge, so that you yeah. get, you get that little, you have that guilt, the book guilt, you know. I gotta write, I gotta write. Oh, but I want to shoot, I want to shoot. Yeah. No, exactly. I'm just a little behind all the time. Actually, I'm I'm actually way behind all the time. <laughs> yes. You just come to, you just deal with it, right? Yeah. It's, part yeah. Of life. it's, it's no longer getting your head above water. It's just it's like, can I see the sun from the surface? You know, from where I am. And and also in the show is Mr. Ron Brinkman. Hey, Ron, what's going on? Nothing. Nothing. Nothing at all. You're just <laughs> hanging out. I, I, you know what? I had this vision of you, like down in Southern California, on a hammock, no shoes, of course, just kicking back with your Kindle, reading, and that's all you're doing. Is Have that... you got a problem with that? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just a little jealousy. That's all. That's all. Yeah. No, I've been busy with a lot of stuff, but uh, nothing particularly noteworthy at this point. So. Oh, it sounds very Apple secret. See, that's the Apple employee and you coming out. It's like, yeah, I'm working on stuff. I can't, I can't talk about unreleased products or services. Yeah, yeah that's it. That's let's it. just go with that. Unreleased products. Let's build up the buzz on something that's non-existent. I Brinkman like that is idea. working on something. Let's start to ruin yeah. it. Oh, it's going to be huge. It's, it's called the, the iBrinkman cloud. <laughs> yes, that's it. All right, guys, uh, before we get going, um, let's give a nod to our sponsor. Alex, who is sponsoring This Week in Photo this week? Well, we would like to uh, thank our sponsor, Squarespace.com. Of course, Squarespace is the uh, fast and easy way to publish a high-quality uh, website or blog. Uh, it's what I'm using for BorderSack, which is my little blog, which I actually, I actually updated last week. You'll actually see some things from Tanzania and I think maybe even some stuff from Tokyo. You mean it's no longer a Cobb website? It's no longer a Cobb website. It, it actually has stuff up there. But that's all done in Squarespace. And I did that in about four or five hours. I set it up. And, um, and I, I occasionally post to it. Also, DB Garage and PixelCore.com uh, are both Squarespace sites. So I know, you know we, we actually use this stuff. And uh, it has, uh, it's just uh, so easy because it's, it's, a, you know, it's WYSIWYG. It's exactly what you, what you see is what you get. Uh, it's easy to use. You don't have to know anything about coding. Of course, you, if you know how to do coding, you can add all kinds of um, you know, uh, a custom code. You can inject code, add CSS. You can do all that stuff. Of course, you can import uh, your your blogs from WordPress, Blogger, Movable Type, TypePad, etc., and export if you decide you don't like it. So it's, it's kind of a low risk process. You can add forums and and photo displays and forms. You know, all you know, all of that stuff can be added uh, inside of Squarespace. It's just a great way to uh, make this. Um, you know make it easy and, and, um, and just put it together. Uh, you know, the, the thing is, is that a lot of photographers uh, are oftentimes, you know, we're artists and you don't really want to know anything about HTML. It's not our job. And uh, this is a great way to avoid all of that. You don't have to worry about how you're going to upload it to the server or how you're going to manage it. Um, they do all that for you. So uh, you can try it out for 14 days. Uh, you can go month to month after that, so you don't have to make a uh, commitment. You get 10% off if you, if you buy in for a year, 20% off if you buy into two years. Um, but if you want to try it out for, for free, uh, you know, sign up for a free account, 14 days, squarespace.com slash TWIP. That's squarespace.com slash TWIP. Uh, and, uh, you know, just give it a shot. You don't have to believe me. Uh, you know, what you should do is definitely go up and check it out. But if you've been waiting to make a website, uh, you know, this is a just this is the place to start playing with your ideas and uh, start throwing them up. You don't have to learn anything about coding. You can just start with one of their many, many templates and, and put it together. So once again, squarespace.com slash TWIP. 
All right. Thanks a lot, Alex. All right. Before we before we jump in, um, I had a late addition to the to the show notes that you guys are looking at, and um, iCloud is which we now have a name for because because Apple so uncharacteristically announced the name of a product that's not even on the market yet. They told folks that they're releasing a product called iCloud next week at WWDC, right? So I think I think what we've seen here, this is a very interesting, I've been thinking about this a lot because while I was traveling, I was kind of following this thing with iCloud. And I, I think that there weren't actually enough rumors. I think usually there's this huge <laughs> push of rumors and ever, everyone has these crazy ideas of what Apple's going to release. There wasn't a lot of rumors going up to WWDC, and so Apple was like suddenly in this in this void of they don't know if the press is going to show up because there isn't a lot of people going crazy over whatever is about to happen. So they they're like, okay, okay, we'll tell you. You know, you know. I think I think that's the big thing. <laughs> if we all stop talking about it, Apple would probably start giving us all kinds of little hints. Uh, yeah. You know, to this process because there just wasn't a lot of no one knew what to expect, and people were fairly sure we're not going to get new hardware, even though we might. Um. But yeah, so so iCloud is uh, is definitely the what is, uh, what like what do you what is it, Alex? I mean, we know it's going to be a cloud based solution, uh, but what does that mean to us? Like for me, um, from a photography or this week in photo standpoint, does it mean that I can, you know, it's like an extension of what .dot Mac was supposed to be, and I can have all my photos in the cloud, which I can kind of do already with a, with a bunch of other services. What what does this mean for the photographer? Well, of course, no one knows yet. Um, but it does it does sound like uh, it's going to be a much more seamless connection between a lot of your applications and your operating system and and whatever kind of cloud service Apple's providing. And so, you know, I can definitely see. I mean, even now, what I do with my .Mac account because it's so easy is that my my most key photos that I'm you know of my kids and uh, PR photos and everything else that are in Aperture, I just simply sync that to uh, you know to my .Mac account. Does it mean? Does it mean people that aren't using Aperture as their primary primary digital asset management app are going to be screwed? I don't know if they're going to be screwed. It, it's going to be a different setup for them. I think it won't be as seamless. I think that, of course, if you're using iPhoto or you're using Aperture, you know Apple, you know that's what they do. They build a closed system and they make it easier if you're using their if their course. tools. And so, yeah. so of course, I think it's going to be a lot easier to um, sync everything if you're in, in iPhoto or Aperture. But I think that. You know, I, I, it looks like they're going to also provide a lot of stuff where you can back stuff up. It's it's hard to it's hard to tell what's going on right now until obviously until next week. But you know, they they're not updating uh, time capsule. And of course, the one thing we have to say is that we're we're speculating right now on Twip, and this show will actually be released after Apple announces. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, you're going to look really silly. So we have to, so we're going to sound really silly by making up all of these these, these things. <laughs> so, Ron, this, if you're if you're listening to this, you know we record this on Saturday, but then release it on Tuesday. Yes. Um, and so, so we're going to. So this is going to be one of those time capsule things yeah. where we get to sound like we were really smart or really. Stupid. Which is why I get to ask the questions and let you guys speculate. So, <laughs> Mr. Brinkman, yeah. I'd like to go on record. And what say, is the iCloud, Mr. Brinkman? <laughs> You know, when we watched that announcement yesterday, I was surprised at how deep Apple's integration Hey, you could be a prophet. You could just, you know, if you nail it right now, just say the iCloud is this, this, and this. Then you will, yes. you will look it's re- really smart. Really, and I, and I think everything we saw yesterday just confirms that I'm really happy with what they did. What's it going to cost? What's it going to cost, Ron? How much? Now, you know, I, I think – all right, I'll, I'll speculate a little bit. I mean, I, I think – Everybody's sort of thinking, all right, the clear one is probably some kind of music uh, sharing sort of scenario. Where the clear one? What do you mean yeah. the clear one? Like, well, the, you know, the, everybody seems to kind of feel like that's going to be sort of a minimum 
features. But I, I do think I think we should minimize this conversation because I I I would like to avoid us looking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So and so the, you you know, see the, the path of leading us down, don't you, Alex? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and and so you know what I would say is that I I hope they do something that really does uh, number one integrate uh, various Apple devices, iOS and 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 uh, OS ten in in a more streamlined way of sharing files. Uh, because you know, as a photographer, I think I want I want that capability. I, I still live in a world where it's kind of painful for me to make sure that I have sort of my best photos that I like to show off sitting on my iPhone, and that that's always up to date with sort of my latest yeah. kind of favorites yep. and everything. Yep, it and, is a problem. Uh, and you know, so for me, that's what I would like to see is something that really makes us a lot a lot more seamless. And I think it's always been a problem with the iOS devices is that there's not like a real file system on there. And you can kind of use Dropbox to do some of it, and I love Dropbox, but you know something that's even more native uh, into the iOS side of things. I think really that's what I'm I'm expecting is that something that makes iOS feel more like it's connected to files outside of uh, its own little ecosystem. Put the put the i back in i right because originally i for the iMacs when they first came out meant Internet Mac. Um, that's what that lowercase i was supposed to be. Oh, is it? Yeah, that's what it was back Who in knew? back when this internet thing was just kicking off and people were thinking it might have legs. Yeah, yeah. So you know, I mean, putting too much speculation aside, so we don't look silly. I, I do think that you know, for me, that that capability of having access to my photos and being able to control kind of what kind of access I have, and you know, maybe I want lower resolution ver- versions loaded onto my phone, and I only want a subset of things. You know, it would just be really great if that kind of capability gets gets better so I don't have to do a lot of... It just feels like I'm always jumping through hoops trying to keep, keep everything things up, up to date. So, yeah. Steve, Steve Simon, not, not to speculate on this, but just in general, you're, you're a strong Aperture user and you, you use it and teach it. What's missing from Aperture right now in terms of being able to, you know, not, not necessarily use Apple's whatever, their rumored solution, their rumored iCloud thing, but... You know what is missing from your workflow that you need there as a working photojournalist to to help you get things synced and up in the cloud and all that. I don't know if anything's really missing uh, from there, but you know it would be nice to have kind of that hard drive in the sky that you can just uh, go to as easily as you do on your desktop. So something that simple, I think, would be fantastic. Yeah, yeah. But what what's I mean, we have that now with Dropbox a little bit, right? I mean, you can just enough. save to that. Yeah. Do you use that? Um, I do for sending, you know, big files, etc. Um, but, uh, you know, as far as the iCloud, I'm a little bit out of the loop, but, um, we'll just have to wait and see. We'll know by the time this thing airs. We will know. So, so do you just use it, Dropbox as a, uh, as a sharing tool to share with other people, Steve? Um, I use, I use, I, I use Dropbox. I use, uh, yes, exactly. That, that, that would, uh, that's What about, exactly what about you guys? What about Frederick and, and Alex, is that the only thing you tend to use it for? Because for me, Dropbox is a major, you know, I pay money to have 50 gigs of it, and I have a, a large chunk of anything I'm working on is constantly in the Dropbox and shared across all of my computers. Yeah, well, I, I use, yeah, me too. So I use Dropbox primarily as my my everything drive, everything except my, I guess, my applications and my uh, my Lightroom library and big things like that, and my, right. of course, my iTunes library. All that of stuff course, is, I don't. All that stuff, yeah, you don't. All that, all that stuff is local. It's on my Drobo. So that stuff, the the heavy stuff is on the Drobo, which is back, which backs itself up every night. Mm-hmm. Um, but the like my working files, all the projects I'm working on, PDF, OmniGraffle documents, Office documents, 
everything that I use on a daily basis or might need access to is synced there because I bounce between multiple computers all the time. Yep. So they all have the same data on them. So I can I can be at work working on a Word document, just hit save, close out, go home, and open it up, and it's at that same state. So And, and it's something that I have to get better about. I mean, one of the things that happens is, is that I had a Pixelcore one, and the problem is people would add stuff to it, and it would fill up my hard drive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. you know, like the, the automatic process of that made me a little insane. Mm-hmm. So, so the... Uh, uh, so, so what do I'll, you do, Alex? Because you you have see, I'm, I, I think I represent like the everyday guy with you know just I have a normal iTunes library, a normal Lightroom library, and normal office and lightweight docs that I need to share with myself. But you have an office environment with gigabytes worth of files that move around every day. How do you manage that? Well, most of, of course, all the heavy stuff is all in my Drobos, and then the and then outside of that, um, the stuff that I ab- absolutely need. Uh, then I'm, I have we have our own FTP servers, and I have a lot of stuff that's all sunk, synced with that. Mm-hmm. So it's very easy for me to just kind of move files around. All of my computers um, are set up for um, uh, back to my Mac. Mm-hmm. So so I uh, I mean, and, and it was like I've been gone for two weeks. I was in I was in uh, in Tokyo in in um, I, when I was in Tokyo, I actually was just for fun. I actually set up a, a live stream in my house uh, here in Petaluma. That's what Alex. To, that's what Alex does for fun, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I just I was like, it was one of the things that I I I, I tunneled into one of my computers, and um, well, the worst part was is that the, the my my tower wasn't the back of the Mac wasn't working. That's actually why I was tunneling in. So I was going through my laptop at home, and then burrowing into my tower from Tokyo. And then what I was doing was, then I saw that, I noticed that Wirecast was open, so I turned it on, and I, I had some cameras already plugged in, and they were still on. And so, so I, I just for fun, I turned the stream on, and so then suddenly I'm watching, so then I'm in Tokyo watching a stream from my house, and I'm editing between cameras from Tokyo, wow. which was, um, anyway, so, so I, anyway, the point is, I use Back to the Mac a lot, which is very powerful. Um, if, for some of the computers that that doesn't work with, I use a, com- a, a service called LogMeIn. Uh, mm-hmm. which is free and, until you want to get more serious about it. If you want to get more serious, you go to something like go to my PC or whatever. Um, but log me in is great. It's a kind of a web service that you can kind of log into any of your computers. It's, and I have that on most of them. So being able to get to those computers and grab things if I need them uh, is, is important. Uh, so, sure. And, the, the thing is you're kind of, by doing this, you're kind of relying on always having that connection. And the thing I really find with Dropbox is that because it's always syncing whenever it can, that I sort of have access well, to the things I need. Yeah, so, to. so the things that I really need, that I know that I need, are always going. Are, are they're not syncing automatically, but I'm throwing them into my FTP, my FTP folder mm-hmm. that I have all the time. And so it's like Dropbox. As I said, the, the, the issue that I had with Dropbox was this automatic syncing that it does, which mm-hmm. is very convenient. But what would happen is, is guys would throw up. We have a 50 gig one, and the problem is, is guys would throw up big files into that box, and suddenly I'd, I couldn't figure out why my hard drive. Stopped working, but Alex, you know, like, Alex, like I was, can you I solve know. that? You could solve that problem with one email, though. You're like, hey, don't put big files in this okay. folder. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. It was just like one of those things, though. It was just like, uh, and if I had my own personal one when I was managing it, it's fine. It's just that I have different levels of storage on different computers. I don't want it to do that. Like, I just don't like. I don't want it to do it automatically. I want to know when I'm. I know. I want to be able to say I'm pulling something down. So I do definitely want it in the cloud. I don't necessarily want it to bring it from the cloud and put it on every computer. That was my thing is that I don't want it to do that automatically. I, I just want to know that I can get to it. And yeah, I'm, I'm connect. I'm depending on some connection to the cloud. Um, and that's, that's the necessary evil there. But what I don't like is it's sucking up all of my, you know, it, I don't want it to do that automatically. And, yeah, right. and I couldn't, 
And I couldn't figure out how to get Dropbox to. I don't think it does work any other way. You, you, know? you can you can fairly recently they introduced the ability to say okay. don't sync certain folders. Yeah. Okay, because uh, I cause it just nice. was like it was just like no matter what I did, this is and I stopped using it six months ago because it was just like ah oh, I oh, can't. It's changed. You need to revisit. It, okay, yeah, because I was just I was just like I can't. Well, and here's the problem was is that six months ago I stopped using it because it kept on filling up my drives, and then. Um, and then as we got closer to the iCloud solutions, I was like, well, I'm going to wait and see what Apple does. Yeah. Cause I, yeah. you know, I'm, and I have to admit, you know, I am an, you know, I hate to admit it, but you know, I like living in the Apple eco- eco- ecosystem. You know, I like, you know, I get that it may not do all the little features or whatever, but I just, I'm very comfortable in the, in the idea that Apple will just manage this for me because it's it, Apple's generally managing areas that I don't want to really deal with. Yeah. I don't want to know anything about it. You want to be a you user. Know, this, you just want to be a user and use. There you're, are many you're places. A user. There's many places. User, you're a user. Yeah. <laughs> when I when yeah. there's many there's many places that I customize a lot and that I work really hard on and I want to focus on those things and and have everything else kind of in the background and that's what Apple tends to be good at is putting stuff in the background that that I want to have in the background. Yeah. All right, guys. Yeah, we, let's, should, I, we should probably move on, but I will yeah. I will go on record on the predictions things that I'll be very surprised if Apple produces something that's as good as Dropbox. I'll be I'll be pleasantly surprised, but. I'm not convinced they're going to be able to do it in a first rev. My guess is, my guess is, is that it's going to not be as good, but it will be good enough for. It will be good enough. This is a typical Apple thing. It'll be good enough for ninety percent of the people, ninety percent mm. of the time. That's what Apple does. And that yeah. other ten percent will be the vocal naysayers that write blog posts about it. <laughs> yep. All right, guys, let's move on to story. This next story, it's about. Uh, I just want to touch on this and see if Steve was planning on buying this thing or. Uh, buying something like it so uh apparently uh like a series o or o series camera fetched 1.89 million dollars u.s dollars in in an auction now steve are you uh were you the buyer of this well actually isn't that i thought that was the list price of the m9 i think uh it's in that same range. I'm just looking at a picture of it. It's probably one of the ugliest cameras. Right? I mean, just think, and look at that picture and then think of all the other things that you could have purchased. Hey, oh, my God. God. 1923, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty amazing. That world of collecting. I mean, I tell you what, if I had money, I would probably be a camera collector just because I'm, you know, a geek that way. I would love to I'd have to have a lot of money to be a camera collector at that level, though. That's yeah, I'm sorry. You know, even you got $50 billion, I'd still would like close one eye at $1.89 million for a camera. I'm yeah, like, but this, yeah. This, they're going to turn around and sell it for, you know, $2 million in another uh, year and a half. It's yeah, I mean, you see that in, in, in 2007, it was like 336,000 euros. And, yeah. and yeah. in like three years, I mean, what a, what a great investment. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. And easy to carry away, too. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I've just never been a... You, you guys, I mean, are you guys? Do you collect your old cameras? Because my old cameras typically head straight to eBay or yeah, think, somebody I else. Think, uh, I think I, I mentioned on on Twip once that uh, you know I I kind of regretted selling the first camera I ever owned, which was the Yashica TL Electro X. So I went to eBay, and there were like twenty of them. So I, I bought one, and I have it here just as a kind of a a reminder, you know, as to. Uh, how it all began kind of thing. It's just kind of a nice thing to have. I wish I had saved all the Nikons from my past. Yeah. Um, I, I, I kind of do, but, but not really. I mean, I go through, my problem is I go through a lot of hardware and if I, if I became uh, emotionally attached to any of it, it would just get really, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I can't you know. wait to see the episode of hoarders that you're on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Ron, Ron, I know you you hoard books. We've seen the video of your uh, that's your my... wall of books that are probably behind you right now. What are you uh, are you the same way with your old camera gear? Yeah, the, the books are what you're going to find me dead underneath when they collapse, not the cameras. <laughs> find a hand sticking up. Uh, you know, I got a couple old cameras that uh, I, I found in you know my my dad's closet uh, when we were cleaning it out after he passed away, and you know that's that's about the extent of it because they they sort of there's that that. Uh, age limit where stuff goes from being old junk to being old cool junk mm-hmm. and so they they were sort of past that limit whereas you know anything that i've owned in my lifetime just sort of falls into the category of old junk so i, I think you know i think it's fun to have a couple of really old cameras up there mostly because when people come over they're like oh you're into cameras these are cool and you're like yeah they're not that cool but you know <laughs> oh so it's for show you're just oh you are in la i guess yeah you have to do that oh uh-huh, yeah right <laughs> But, you know, in, in doing the research for this Nikon book, I've been reading a lot about the Nikon F, which was really a, a groundbreaking camera, amazing camera mm-hmm. for its time. And was that your first camera, Steve? Uh, no, it wasn't. It wasn't. My my first Nikon was an FM. <laughs> but but I mean, when that thing came out, it it kind of changed everything. And you know, they're still working. These things are like you know over fifty years old, yeah. and uh, they're they're still working fine, and they're available really cheaply. So. I mean, it's almost a shame, you know, that they're they're out there. But it, it's it's you know, the collectors are there. I think in places like Japan, there's more of a reverence for photography, and there's more of a market um, for these things. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. One day, maybe I'll have a display case full of all of these old cameras. But right now, I'd just rather be recycling them into money to buy new cameras. I mm-hmm. Yeah, I have it. If I had a 1.8 million dollars, I mean, I could build a whole studio for that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And sink a bunch of water wells in Africa. You know, you can be exactly (laughs) done. All right. Excuse me, guys. Next story is Nikon is suing Sigma over uh, infringing on their VR technology patent. Um, Now, Alex, I want to throw this to you first. What is VR technology? Uh, You know, I actually. you, 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 you know what VR you should throw this to, You should throw this to Ron. Well, see, v, VR is... Vibration the, reduction. You, I was going to say, you, you can tell that Alex is a Canon shooter. I know, right? <laughs> Look at that. What, what, is, what is it on the Canon side? Image, is it, is it IS? IS, okay. It's IS. So this is the VR is just, the, is just VR all is, the... Yes, VR is the, uh, the Nikon equivalent of that. And it's, yeah. it, it's interesting to think about. The whole patent question is just you know open for, for tons of debate, obviously. But this sense of how... You know, how do you advance technology? Somebody comes up with uh, one method of stabilizing, and then can you do you have to come up with some method that's so radically different but still gives the same results? And it, you know, it seems like there are very there's a limited number of ways you can design to come up with a way to stabilize an image, right? You, you either got to move a lens around or or move the sensor around, and there's not a whole lot of variations on that. So I can see why somebody else comes along and. Nikon and Canon have locked up a couple patents, and and it's going to be really hard to produce some similar kind of a capability without infringing on a patent in some way. Yeah. And apparently, you know, Sigma uh, got a little bit too close, I guess, for Nikon's comfort, and they they felt like they could go ahead and and win some kind of a suit there. And you know, I I have a lot of mixed feelings about well, and, and isn't it, it used in this sort of scenario? And one of the complicated things is, I believe, if if I'm if I'm correct, Nikon and Canon do it radically differently because Nikon depends on the camera. Canon depends on the lens. No, no, that's, that's not true, Alex, actually. You know, Nikon developed, uh, you know, VR technology. They were the first on the block. It actually came out in a cool picks in, in 1994. Hmm. And when you look at this suit, it's like for $150 million. I mean, it's, it's worth going after. And I think a lot of companies that do 
you know, invest a lot in research and development. I understand the idea that, you know, when you lock it up, it kind of impedes progress. But I mean, they've been they've been working on this technology, you know, from the beginning. They're the ones who came out with it first. So, so I mean, I can under I can under you know stand them wanting to to protect it because other companies can license it, you know, if they mm-hmm. want to incorporate it into into new products or or even you know develop it further. Well, and, and, and as we know, I mean, the big thing is, is that what creates the value is not the camera body. So they have to protect this stuff because it's you know they're you know the it's the lens system that people are getting attached to. So, you know, allowing a third party who's making lenses to dive into that, that's, that's really digging into Nikon uh, in a more aggressive way than, than copying anything on their camera bodies. So, Steve, yeah. so you were saying that, that Nikon pioneered VR or vibration reduction technology. Did Canon license this from Nikon or is, is their technology radically different? You know, I, I have absolutely no idea about Canon, <laughs> about anything that they do. But I do know that the VR, you know, came out initially on on this, you know, a VR on a lens came out on this Coolpix camera because there have been, um, you know, VR image stabilization technology on, on the camera itself. But, I mean, VR really does work. And, and now, you know, with the VR2 Nikon lenses, they claim four stops so basically Four? you can handhold oh, yeah so if, if you're if you can handhold a 250 uh 125 160 30 one of a second from 250 it will That's give you the crazy. same kind of stabilized image it really works and and the beauty of vr in the nikon system and i i, I suspect it's with canon too is that uh for every lens they they design its own vr mechanism to to fit the design of that lens so it it really does work. I've done some testing with it. You don't want to depend on it. You'd rather be on a tripod and turn VR off, or you need fast shutter speeds to to stop moving subjects. But when you need it and, and it's there, it can really save your butt. Well, and, and and also when you get into these really long lenses, um, you know, even on a tripod, you're paying attention to. It. I know with with some of the lenses that we use. Uh, uh, we need to have we're just sit, if we're sitting on a platform and we're worried about wind or worried about people stepping on it or anything else those small vibrations when you're zooming in you know hundreds of feet uh you know that's something that you know you need the 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 is or the vr to um you know to stabilize because otherwise you'll get small vibrations even in those long you know just just on these really long throws but do you, you know, need not, do you steve you mentioned like if you're on a tripod you turn it off do you need yeah, to, you, should you, you turn actually, it off yeah, you, well, with the Nikon system, you're supposed to turn it off when you're on a tripod because actually the mechanism itself, um, will try and kind of stabilize. But if, if your, if your camera is stable on a tripod, um, it can, in theory, it could actually, in, you know, uh, uh, promote camera movement. Oh, get, wow. Yeah, they promote it. So that's why you want to turn it off. But with the long lenses, I mean, best practice, of course, is to, um, you know, maybe lock up the mirror to minimize vibration. I've also heard, too, that, you know, if you've got VR on and, you know, if you're not on a tripod for whatever reason and you're doing um, HDR, um, because that image, you know, changes also subtly, you won't have, you know, three images that are kind of in registration that you need for, for oh, VR. Oh, right. That is a really good point. You know who also has VR technology and has had it or IS or whatever you want to call it forever? Sony. So in their in their handy cams and those little 
you know, the little uh, video cameras that they've been selling for years, they've had image stabilization technology in those. And I've, you know, when you turn it on, you can tell it's on because there's this lag of when right. you when so you pan left and right. around a little bit. Yeah, yeah. it just floats yeah. just a little bit, and then you know you're you could be shaky from coffee, and you look through the viewfinder, and everything is rock solid. <laughs> you know, well, but but again, if, when you zoom in, one of the things I noticed we have image stabilization on some of our cam on little video cameras, and you'll if you you'll you'll stop moving. And exactly what what Steve was just talking about. You'll stop moving, and then the whole image just kind of keeps on floating mm. because it's you know it's it's it it still assumes that you're you know it has to stabilize something, and it just kind of drifts, you know. So that's the other thing that that you get into. Yeah. Yeah. And we're we're also starting to see VR like Nikon, for example, can, on the sixteen to thirty five with wide lenses. You you haven't seen it introduced, but now with DSL with video. Um, there's starting to be kind of a, a a want for it, even at at wide lenses. Which yeah, is- and I find that very interesting because you know generally you, you feel like you don't need it as much since you're you've got you know a small lens movement isn't going to affect the image as much. And uh, but yeah, you're starting to see this on these fairly wide angle. I mean, I think. Uh, Steve, is that right? That it's the 16 to something that they even have it on now? Yeah, the 16 to 35 was the first kind of wide lens to, to get yeah, it's it. A, it's and, a really uh, wide lens. And yeah, spe- specifically for um, uh, the, the video. And, yeah. uh, I mean, there's one school of thought that says, hey, I mean, you know, you can have it on all lenses. And, you know, when you want to turn it on, if you're, on con- you're in control, you can do it. But it does tend to, to add a little bit of bulk and weight to the lens, uh, having the mechanism. So. Yeah, and it's right. Steve. You're you're shooting Nikon, and you, I'm, I assume you have the the twenty four to seventy two eight. Are you? And that has VR on it. No, it, no, it, that one doesn't actually. That doesn't have VR on it. No, it's not a VR lens. It's where a, where does VR start? Like what on what zoom uh, lens? Well, I I think it starts generally. Uh, well, it's on the seventy to two hundred. Yeah. It's on it's on any of the the fairly big range zooms. Uh, the one hundred five macro, for example, has it. But uh, traditionally, um, wide angle does not. Um, okay. I, I, I'd, ha- I'd have to sort of take a look at some of the uh, you know cheaper, slower lenses. I think a lot of them do have it because that's what you know amateurs kind of need mm-hmm. if they don't want to you know really take control of the process and just you know get the best results. Yep, use the force. Use the force. All right, guys, let's move on to story. This next story, uh, it's about Flickr. And we had Heather Champ, who was the, who used to be the director of community over at Flickr in charge of this kind of stuff. Um, but it looks like Flickr has introduced a 90 day grace period for deleting accounts. <laughs> 90 days. Uh, Ron Snickers over there. Well, tell it, us, it, tell it, us what this is first, what the story is, and then but, give well, us your opinion. So, so what, what it is is yes, they, they are saying that they've graciously added the ability where if you delete your account, uh, you'll be able to, oh, say, oh, wait, never mind for up to 90 days. And undelete. Then recover. undelete for 90 days, right? Right. So you can undelete for, yeah, up to 90 days. Uh, I, the reason I laughed is because there was a couple of very high-profile screw-ups on Flickr's part where they accidentally deleted people's accounts and realized that they had no way to get it back. Mm. So, I, you know, it smells to me more like they <laughs> they instituted this system where all accounts uh, have 90 days post-deletion where they can get it back, and then they're sort of spinning it as, uh, here's, a, here's a new feature we're adding for you. <laughs> but really, I think Brilliant. it's... Brilliant! Covering their own ass so that whenever the next time they accidentally delete somebody's account, they can get it back as opposed to just wiping it microseconds later. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's it's a good thing. I don't. I really can't imagine how many times 
people say, I, I'm going to delete my whole account and then have second thoughts about it. It feels like well, it's just not that common. Right. The, the, only, the only question I have is related to this is that, is that does this, from a Patriot Act perspective, oh, um, God. you know, create a, an, an issue around, okay, so I, you know, someone posted an image and then they realize they might get in trouble for it and then they delete their account so that they don't end up in trouble for it. Um, but now uh, Anthony, the federal you know, government knows that they have it's there for the next 90 days and they could s- theoretically subpoena it. Oh, crap. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the that's the only concern, you know. Now, I have to admit, I'm, I, I don't put a ton of images and I definitely wouldn't put highly sensitive images on Flickr. Um, but you could definitely see how someone not thinking about that, you know, just it's just something to think about when you post this stuff. I mean, and that's in general. You put it on the Internet and you seem to know that it never really goes away. Steve, are you are you using a Flickr? Are you using Flickr specifically or any type of photo sharing service? Um, well, personally, I do have a Flickr account um, because I would uh, dip into the uh, Nikon Digital Learning Center. And, and that's a group on Flickr. So I got involved in that way. But um, I, I haven't, to be honest, you know, I and, you know, I know we're going to be talking more about photo sharing on the next news item, but I just haven't um, had the time really to to really take the time and, and do stuff. But I will tell you, um, I mentioned um, a few months ago when I was at Gulf Photo Plus in Dubai, there's a photographer, uh, Manny Lombardo, who is just a, a, a beautiful, available light photographer, does great work. And he was a teacher in Thailand and he credits um, Flickr and other sharing sites for basically giving him his career in photography. He would post stuff up. His stuff was so good that it, people took notice. But he also got a lot of great uh, you know, criticism and critique that he learned from. And he bases you know, his whole life right now in terms of his working photographic life um, on sites like Flickr and other sharing sites, which which can be a fantastic thing. So I'll I'll get back to it once I'm finished doing the stuff that I'm doing. No, run run. So there's Flickr, right? So you've got Flickr, who's who's the 300 pound gorilla, whatever mm-hmm. 900. It's been out there in the photo sharing space forever, and a lot of people argue that they sort of miss their opportunity to to stay relevant with companies like Instagram nipping at their heels and and now this next story that we're going to talk about is Twitter but um, all these other companies that are doing what Flickr you know uh, should have done you know is what folks yep. are saying so we've got companies like Pure Photo out there and 500 px or 500 pixels that are that are doing these gorgeous sort of UIs that are sort of taking images and saying well you know if Flickr had executed properly this is what they would have looked like and yep. making those available to people. Do you think Flickr's day is past? Is it time to move on from Flickr? Uh, kind of. Yeah, I mean, I haven't moved yet. And I, and I don't think that there's necessarily a clear replacement for it out there yet. I haven't spent a whole lot of time on, like, 500px. I know they just got some funding, so they've got, uh, you know, some VC funding. So they've got money to, to do even more and move even faster. Mm-hmm. Um, they, only got, they got half a million dollars, right? Yeah, you know. But, I mean, for a, for a small company that, you know, it gives that gives them the chance to hire a few more engineers and really execute quickly. Yep. Uh, I you know, there's I have no reason to believe that uh, they can't get up to speed with a feature set that that is more compelling than Flickr's because Flickr really hasn't changed in in years, right? Yeah. And you know, there's this there is certainly an inertia with all right, I've got all my stuff on Flickr and I don't really want to change, but they're making it pretty easy to to switch over too. Yeah. And I think that's that's part of what. Uh, needs to grow is you know there really should just be a one button click where it's just like I'm going to import everything I don't know if they do that to that level of ease or not but it would seem like that'd be an obvious kind of low hanging fruit 
So I, I yeah, I don't, you know, it's going to take me a while to get around to bothering to move it somewhere. You know, uh, I, I would I, really love it. You know how we, I think you do this, Ron, where you, just so that you can use multiple digital asset management applications, you, you know, we store our photos uh, hierarchically in the file system so that, mm-hmm. you know, I have my hierarchy of images in folders and I can point whatever, you know, Aperture, Lightroom, iPhoto, whatever at this directory and I can see what's in the directory and use whatever application I choose. I would love to have that sort of flexibility in the cloud so that I could build my hierarchy of images that I want in the cloud there and then point a third-party cloud-based service at those images. So say it's on iCloud, Apple's iCloud. Pull my images up there, and then I choose to say, hey, I like Flickr's UI, or I like Pure Photo's UI. Mm-hmm. Use this as the source for my images and yeah. have it, you know, that way I can move around. I know they would never do that because then I would not be sticky, but that's, I think that would be the holy grail for me. Well, they wouldn't do it, but, you know, they, they smaller companies may be able to provide a, a front end to something. Uh, and, you know, somebody like Apple may not care if they're providing a, a, basically a storage capability, really, you know, what, what tools you're using to access it. So I, I think we'll see a lot of disruption in this space. I mean, the other... In a lot of ways, the real 500-pound gorilla is Facebook. They are, as far as I believe, they're actually the largest repository of photos right now. Yeah, but that's like uh, that's like saying you know McDonald's is the largest restaurant chain. Yeah, they are, but they're McDonald's, right? I mean, like the images on Facebook, I don't put anything that like, oh, I spent five hours retouching this meticulously, and now I'm going to upload it to Facebook. You know. It's it. it but why Facebook don't you? is more because Facebook is more of my throwaway. Oh, look at this this cool iPhone shot that I did of but, but somebody's why is that? foot. Is, it, is that because the the interface to these photos does not give you the level of sort of display capabilities that mm. you want? I mean, I, that, that I think sort that, of my take on I it. think that, and I think also because I'm afraid and I don't fully understand Facebook's privacy policy, and mm-hmm. so therefore I'm only going to give them my junk food, you know, and not necessarily yeah. my my steak, you know. Well, and, I, and I, I have to admit, you know, I don't get into as many of the conversations related to, for instance, uh, uh, you know, copyright and so on and so forth. But I have to, you know, I don't put, I don't put most photos up that are very important to me online. Period. Mm-hmm. You know, like if if they're really, you know, if they're really really important to me, or unless they have a specific use, you know, like I put them on my blog. Um, because that's the use that I, that's why I took them, <laughs> yeah. but, but, but I then don't, no one's going to see them though. So it's like if, if a tree falls in the forest, you know, if Alex takes I a put, picture and no one sees it, did he really take that picture? They're in my, they're in, you know, they're in albums that I make at home. They're in my personal stuff. I mean, I put them on like they're in my dot Mac account for instance, but I don't, yeah. but I don't necessarily put them on Facebook and I don't necessarily put them on, you know, that type of thing They're you know, and some of them are on my kids and there's, you know, there's all those privacy issues, sure, sure. but, but I think that people, you know, but I, I think that part of it is, is that I, you know, and I do, it's not not that I never post anything, um, but it's definitely like I am very aware when I put something online that I'm making that publicly available and that there's a lot of control that I'm giving up at that point. Um, and when I do that, I'm, I kind of know, you know, I kind of accept that risk. And I think a lot of people, though, that don't think about that. They just kind of throw everything up there. Well, yeah. and see, Fred, you're, you're saying, well, you, you know, if you don't put it on someplace like Flickr, then nobody's going to see it. But mm-hmm. that, you know, you can make that argument even more extreme for if you don't put it on Facebook, nobody's going to see it. And I still think that, I mean, I understand all the concerns about Facebook has got kind of a, a shady past with privacy issues. Uh, but I think most of that is the press thing. And not, not that I don't think they have a shady past, but I, I'm not convinced that Flickr's is really any better. I just don't think yeah. it makes the news as much. And I really can see some scenario where people just 
upload their photos to you know some random location. There's tons of free hosting services for photos, and then there's this totally separate issue of what interface do you provide for people to find it, and having something that you know lets people find it on Facebook, but also lets people find it on you know, multiple other sites, be it Twitter or personal blog or you know potentially even Flickr. Yeah. I could see something like that evolving, where there's you know there's a, there's a separation between who stores your photos and who helps you serve them up for viewing. Right now, Steve, are you uh, you know just in general, where do you fall on letting your images as you take them? Say, say you're on you know you were you were shooting photos for your book, The Republicans, and you know you want people to know about these images but then at the same time they're going to go in the book so they have a monetary value as well do you where do you fall on sharing those images out on the internet um well i i think that uh you know for me um you know places that i can control my own website and uh you know the blog that i'm hoping going hopefully going to be starting up in a couple of months those are the places where i would want to put them out and i realize you know, I'm not necessarily going to have the traffic that I would in, in other places, but I want to be able to sort of, um, you know, have that central location to grow that location to bring people there. So um, <clears throat> I would probably uh, kind of err on the side of keeping it uh, in my own space as opposed to, you know, putting it out on, on those public sites and building up the, uh, the viewership to my own sites. Yeah, no, I agree. I'm I'm in the process of reassessing how I want to do this. I mean, because, you know, Flickr you know, not executing or listing, however you want to look at that service. And then, you know, I use SmugMug for professional things where I can password and they, you know, I have a branded gallery there that I can put all my images in and, you know, assign different price lists to different groups, that kind of thing. So that gives me that pro level that I want. And then on the, but in terms of like just this gorgeous UI stuff, I'm looking at Pure Photo and and 500px as like okay is this going to be the new Flickr you know for where I put my images that I just kind of want to expose to people you know not necessarily for sale not necessarily for any other reasons I just want people to look at them and give me feedback on them so I think those services and maybe Flickr will surprise us and completely retool and blow those guys out of the water but you know it doesn't look like that's going to happen soon. I don't know. Alex, are you? Uh, what's what's your next move? Are you just going to wait and see what what Apple does, or what? Yeah, I mean, the first step is going to be waiting and see, you know, and looking at what the the iCloud solutions uh, look like. But I do think that one of the things that that's a real soul searching within the Pixel Core and for me and everything else is is whether individual sites are going to matter anymore. You know, uh, you know, or or do do I? You know, do, does the Pixel Core do, do I focus more on Facebook and Twitter and you know you know that type of thing? Um, you know, I'm, you know, it's been one of those discussions that's kind of bouncing around a lot internally is, you know, is, is whether we, you know, uh, is whether we really focus on more of that, you know, being part of all of those places and trying to find a central repository or a central process that, that does this rather than, um, you know, that gets it out to everyone. Um, you know, I know with our video solutions, we're kind of looking at a company called Mediafly, which basically gets it onto TVs and it gets it onto to Roku and Boxy and the iPad and the iPhone and the Android and everything else. And, and it just puts it out everywhere. Uh, we only have to think about one, you know, you know, publish once and get it out to every device. And in the same way, what I'm trying to find is a solution that lets me do the same thing with images and with our marketing and everything else where we you know, publish once and we just put it out on all those different platforms and, and stop thinking about our website as, the, as that location. There might be a website for our members and, and a closed system for that. But even there, we're trying to figure out, do we continue to develop for the web? 
which we're seriously, you know, wondering about, mm-hmm. uh, or whether we just completely focus on things like iOS and Android and and so on and so forth, like mobile devices, and stop developing for the web altogether and really move towards NetApps, which is where I wanted to go to NetApps for for ten years, and so I'm just kind of like I, I'm starting to think that that might be the the future is that you have a database of, of data, you know, of, whether it's images or all your information and everything else, that's all centralized in the cloud. And then, uh, and then you have device-centric, you know, applications that are accessing all of that data. Um, but, you know, I think that the, you know, the, the web has been very powerful up to now, but it's, we're using it for things that it wasn't really designed for. And it doesn't, every time we work on, we've just gone through this huge development for the Pixelcore internal site, the hub, and uh, it is so painful mm-hmm. to get yeah. it to run on all these different browsers and all this other stuff that I, yeah. by the end of it, I always get to the end going, yeah, I'm never going to do that again. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, this is, this is, what was I thinking? You yeah. know, and, and I think that that's the, uh, you know, that's kind of what we're really grappling with as we finish a huge amount of web development is, you know, whether that really makes sense in the long term. Yeah. Well, yeah. And there's always a new browser coming, right? So. You know, Safari is due for another refresh soon. So. Well, and the vast majority are still using what IE, right? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's just the most insane, insanely horrible. You know, <laughs> insanely horrible. I love it. Yeah. All right, guys, let's, let's move on to this 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 final story. Uh, this one's about Twitter. I think it's a huge deal. They've unveiled their photo and video sharing features within the service. Uh, basically, these service or that particular niche has been handled by services like TwitPic, YFrog, etc., and Twitter has basically said, hey, we're, uh, we're going to bring this in-house and integrate it with the network, meaning that you can share photos directly and they will be connected to the tweets that you share them from. And it will also surface most popular, the most popular videos and tweets in a new section on the homepage. So, well, I think this gets back to what I was just talking about, yep. you know, which is this idea that, you're, you know, that, that, that connection between that social network and, and your expression is much more of a, um, you know, is becoming much closer. That yeah. makes sense. No, Ron. Ron, what about this? Does this make? Are you going to use this? Are you? Are you? You're a big tweeter. Are you going to? Yeah, sound I mean, right, I, I think <laughs> I think some of this goes to uh, you know that that same issue of how Facebook has become you know one of the largest repository of photos. I think I think Twitter recognizes that controlling you know as much of the data as possible is a good thing. Yeah. Um, why not integrate it and allow them to serve up these images wherever? You know, why would they want somebody else to have access to? What is uh, effectively a huge component of what people are, you know, the information that people are sharing on Twitter, and you know, there's no reason for them not to control that. And you know, there's also just some recent kind of kerfluffle about the terms of use of TwitPic, which is kind of the was sort of for a while the the. I didn't, I didn't hear about that. What was the, what was the kerfluffle? Well, basically, they changed their their terms of of use so that you pretty much agreed that. Yes, you still own the rights to the images that you tweeted, but they also own the rights to it. They had a non-exclusive right to it, so that they could, you know, by law, turn around and sell any photos. Why that... do they do that? Why do these services? Do no, no, that? wait. Did they say sell or use? Uh, I don't think. I don't think they just... have. Well, legally, they have the right to do anything with it. You know, right. um, and my I understanding think that... is that included potentially the right to sell it. I don't think that they were executing on that. Yeah, I, th- I think that, that there's a potential there. I think that one of the things that we have to kind of, uh, uh, you know, keep track, there's, there's what they're legally reserving 
Right. Um, and, and what they would, what would make sense for them to do. They would never sell other people's photos. And the reason that they would never sell them is because it would destroy their service yeah. immediately. But they're leaving they're, themselves the ability to, if they I should think, want to. Though. I think more importantly, what they're leaving themselves the ability to do is run advertising on their site that's generating revenue that may be generated by the images that are there. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I think that that's, that's what they're trying to make sure they can do. And because you, you, when you write legal, when you write these, I mean, I, we, we have to write these terms of agreement. <laughs> and you write them, and they look on paper fairly draconian. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason that you do that is actually to avoid lawsuits, you know, because you just, you just say, I want, you know, the universe, you know, rather than, you know, and, and, and um, the, the, but the common sense behind all of that is there's no way you could actually do that without destroying your, your you know, the thing is, is they would last for about 10 minutes after they started selling users at, um, photos. So, you know, while they may have that, that, that right, mm-hmm. um, you know, the right and the, and the ability to actually uh, execute on that is, is very different. Uh, fair enough. And, and I, I totally get that this is, you know, the typical thing that you do is, is go ahead and make sure that you are completely covered legally as, as far as you can push it. And, you know, and I'm looking at the actual terms of service they have, which grants them a worldwide, non-exclusive, royalty-free, sub-licensable, transferable license to use, reproduce, and distribute images posted by Twitpic. And, and, you know, clearly it doesn't say, and we can sell it in there. And functionally, and functionally that means that we can put it on our website, we can make it available on an iOS app, we can, um, you know, we can, uh, you know, run advertising against it. I mean, that's functionally what, what it really pr- preserves and ensures, yep. that no one can say, well, you can't use it for those, those purposes. Yeah, but, you know, you, you do have to, okay, sure, a service like Twitpic is is not going to be well served by doing that if they want to keep their customers around. But uh, think about a scenario where a few years down the road they're starting to struggle. Uh, somebody come along wants to buy them, like for instance Getty Images, and you know they see that as well. Hey, we've got access to all of these photos that somebody signed away your rights to, and and so part of it is not will they execute on that right now. It is if something were, were to happen down the road, you know, especially with a small company like Twitpic. Uh, they are much more likely to be acquired by somebody who might decide to take advantage of these things. And users are are, are so uh, sort of attuned to this, and they're watching for it. And as you know, even though, as you say, it does make sense to put in all that information in the fine print. Uh, in the end, uh, the fine print uh, becomes kind of a news story, and people are aware of it, and it it hurts them. So, yeah. I mean, they got to sort of weigh the the pros and cons of. Uh, being overly cautious in their fine print and, and alienating their their membership base. Yeah, yeah. You know, just just sort of a side note. This was a story we we didn't actually cover, but uh, I was reading a little bit about sort of the uh, the way to protect yourself online when you put photos up. And it turns out that if you watermark your photos, there's actually a total there's a separate um, suit that you can fi- file for people that remove that watermark and repost your photo. Uh, and and they're big damage. Well, like, I, I believe it's like at least one hundred fifty thousand dollars per use. What? Yeah, it's it's large. Yeah, and, yeah. And you put so, you put you put if you if you put a watermark on it and someone re- takes that watermark off and then puts it anywhere, it is like a, it's a cha-ching. Wow. Yeah. It sounds like a business model. Just like litter the Im- litter the <laughs> internet with watermarked beautiful images and wait for people to snap them up. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. I was reading that. I was like, you know, at some point. And I, I kind of almost hope it does go this way, that, that it may be more uh, profitable to just put your stuff out there, but make sure that you know, it's clear that you do retain rights to it and potentially watermark it, 
and then uh, just just wait for people to infringe and then go out and collect. Yeah, I mean, there's there's automatic uh, trolling software out there that uh, big companies like Getty will mm-hmm. sort of scour the web uh, looking for infringements and sending letters out. And I, I understand they make a, a nice chunk of change just by doing that. Yeah. And I, I kind of like that model in some ways where, you know, you just you don't have to do a whole lot of proactive work as a photographer and you just know that should somebody large infringe against you, then you may you may be able to still make make good money off of it. And you know what it, what it doesn't do is protect you against the really small infringements, uh, but you are unlikely to get money from that anyway. So yeah. I mean, you should always register your copyright for your serious photography. But when I look at you know TwitPic and these kinds of things, it's it's more like you know here's a picture of my omelet and I'm going to upload it right away. You know, stuff from your iPhone, that kind of thing. Instagram, the I junk, think, is... The junk food photography, right? Exactly. I think Instagram is a great fun thing. And, you know, you're starting to see photographers on Instagram, you know, with a legion of followers sort of wanting to see what they see with their iPhones. And, are you talking about you know, me, I, Steve? You're talking about me. I'm talking you? about you, Fred. I'm always <laughs> talking about you. you. Read between the lines. <laughs> I know it's you're looking at me. I know it. So just for what it's worth, I, I checked around a little bit, and at least the one article that I find here, and I don't know if this is authoritative, says that under the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, uh, removal of a watermark, you can sue and claim damages of up to $25,000 per incident. Oh, okay. I, I, I thought it was 150 but yeah, it's still, it's a big... It's a chunk. Yeah, it's still... A, Alex I would, doesn't I would get be out of happy bed, to have uh, somebody uh, remove one of my watermarks for that. Yeah. yeah, Alex doesn't get out of bed for less than one hundred fifty thousand. <laughs> <laughs> how many? How many Alex is that, Alex? How many Alex is twenty five k? I I I I want to say it's about thirty five. Is that right? Wow! wow. Not right. Thirty five <laughs> All right, guys. Hey, it is. It is. it is time for the Tips of the Week segment. This is where each guest gives a photography-related tip to help you, the TWIP listener, improve your photography. And the first one I'm going to throw it to is Ron Brinkman. What is your tip of the week? <laughs> well, this, this isn't really a tip, I, but I was just looking for something to, to put in here. Uh, just because last night I watched the movie Blow Up, which is, uh, I don't know if any of you guys have seen this, it's from 1966. And it's a sort of funky, um, and this is not... Blow Out, which was the John Travolta movie. This oh is, yeah, that's the one I was thinking. Yeah. No, no, this is Blow Up. It's a it's a, a British uh, British film, sort of set in the in the swinging sixties. But it's about this photographer, uh, and it's it's just sort of fun as kind of a slice of life of you know what it, based on it based on kind of on the life of a real photographer. And there's a little bit of kind of intrigue added to it, but it's mostly just sort of a, a slice of life of uh, you know this kind of. Um, famous swinging photographer and and sort of his, the life he's leading in London in the sixties. So it's it, a stereotypical it was, photographer just walking around like hitting on women and it is kind of yeah. Although apparently it was it was based on uh, a real photographer in some ways, um, a couple of real photographers, but in particular um, a guy named. I can't remember now who it is, but he was really well known for doing a lot of photography in the '60s, and was one of the first photographers to kind of become a one of those a celebrity photographer, somebody that was known um, for his photography, and kind of hung out with all the beautiful people because of uh, his his notoriety. See, my understanding was that uh, mostly males went into photography after watching that movie because uh, I, I can believe it, you know, because I watched I, that movie I'm like. Man, I got to get into doing some. <laughs> <laughs> portrait I'm going to go sign up for Model Mayhem now. Right? <laughs> As a way to meet chicks, basically. Exactly. That was uh, the way it was. Wow. All right. Cool. Thanks, Ron. Uh, let's throw it to Mr. Alex Lindsay. Do you have a tip of the week? 
Yeah, so my tip of the week is to embrace prime lenses. <laughs> so um, nice. Embrace the prime. Embrace the prime. So uh, one of the things to think about is a lot of us have, you know, you, you get your SLR and you get your kit lens that comes with your SLR. And, uh, you know, and, and it's a fine lens. I mean, it's, it's fine to get started. But one of the things to know is that you're not getting the same, you know, uh, you know aperture options, number one. Uh, is is that you're going to be able to get a much faster lens. Uh, the prime lenses typically are, you know, a 2.8 or a 1.4 or a 1.8 or a 1.2, you know, and, and what that allows you to do is have much shorter depth of field. It also lets you have, uh, you know, obviously shoot in darker areas. And so, you know, the thing, if you're just getting into this and you've just got your SLR, think about a couple of, uh, you know, primes. We, we often talk about a 50 millimeter, uh, especially if you're on an APS camera, the 50 millimeter people have been, asking me about this uh if you're looking at if you're not in a full frame sensor you may find that that 50 millimeter is a little long it's more like an you know it's great for portraits but if you want to shoot a group or whatever you may find that that's because it's, it's kind of like an 80 millimeter at that point and so yeah. you might want to think about something a little bit wider a, a 35 or a 28 um and uh, but, but what you're going to find is that there's a couple things about it one is is that you're going to get you know this low light uh, op, more low light options uh, you tend to get a sharper image not always a lot of the if you spend a lot of money on glass you know the, the difference between the zoom lens and the prime are going to be um pretty small uh, but you still may notice it uh, that, the, that the primes tend to be a little bit sharper and also you know i like to walk around with the prime it's a lot lighter so a lighter for the quality of glass and so um, and I also like I like to walk around with a prime lens because it gets me thinking about what that like by having the same lens on for a while. Uh, typically right now I'm in this mode of um, I got a 28 on my 5D and I that's my walk around lens. I just decided that's my walk around lens for a little while. And I really am getting a sense of what that lens length looks like, you know, and so it allows me to kind of model that by shooting hundreds of photos uh, through the same lens. Now, I, you know, if I'm shooting something that's actually a function or I'm doing work, you know, I'm going to have a couple prime lenses that I'm going to use and usually a zoom lens and, you know, a lot of other things that, that I have as options. But but if you haven't gotten into using prime lenses, um, you know, you want to, uh, you know, my suggestion is is to start thinking about renting some and just seeing what they're like and possibly getting a couple of them. And they're, they're really great, great pieces of glass. Very cool. Prime lenses. Thank you, Optimus Prime. And next is Mr. Steve Simon. Steve, what's your, uh, yeah, just, what's your tip? Just further to what Alex was saying, you know, total agreement with that. And, and the one big thing that I see, especially when I'm doing workshops, et cetera, is that you know, with zoom lenses, we tend to sort of stay in our comfort zone and zoom that lens. With a prime, you've got to kind of zoom with your feet and just see how things look moving around. And in my experience, especially dealing with students, it really does help them to sort of break through and past the same kind of things that they're doing all the time. So, you know, a prime lens, you know, I think is a great idea. Um, my my um, tip of the week, we talked about it earlier, it's basically the off switch. So turn the camera off when you're changing lenses, when you're changing, um, you know, memory cards. Um, the reason for that is just simple electronics, um, it it uh, will prevent any bad things from happening, particularly when you've got VR lenses, because um, if the lens is sort of in motion doing something and the camera's turned on and you turn the camera off, there is that slight possibility. It's generally not going to happen that something electrical could go wrong. There's also a school of thought that when you're changing lenses, for example, the the uh, CC or the CMOS uh, sensor is actually charged and will attract dust. And I've seen that written a lot 
um, around different different places. I don't know if that's actually true, but um, it's just best practices. You know, turn the, if you're putting a flash on, turn the camera off. Um, the contacts that your lens makes when you put it on, um, you know, it's just it's just leaving yourself open to some potential trouble. Ninety five percent of the time, you can leave, you can forget it'll be fine, but uh, it's just as a best practice. That's cool. Great tip, Steve. Thanks a lot. All right. And my tip is to get inspired photographically by music. And what I mean by that is, you know, a lot of people, we, we do these This Week in Photo photo walks from time to time, and people have trouble, like, deciding on what to shoot, you know, because there's so much stuff, or, you know, if or there may not be anything to shoot. So um, get inspired by listening to music as you're photo walking. Maybe even put some music on your headphones while you're walking around and use try to capture what you're feeling or hearing in the music photographically. For example, if it's a love song, use that as the soundtrack for your photography and see if that helps you focus better on what you want to sort of accomplish with the images that you're capturing. So if it's a love song or some techno music or some rap, whatever, you know, put it in there and let the music sort of guide what your eye is going to shoot and see when you look at those images in your image processing software, see if you can see the music in the photos that you shot and see if it sort of triggers like, oh, I was listening to that particular you know the phrase song when I uh, when I shot that when I shot that picture. See if it see if you can connect the dots that way. And that would be that's uh, that's interesting, uh, Fred. So have you tried that yourself? Has it kind of worked for you? It does um, work, and I have tried it. Yeah, because I I you know I the reason I came up with that tip is because I like depending on the mood I'm in that drives the music I listen to in my car when I'm driving. So if I'm in an angry mood, there's gonna be some angry music playing, and I'm gonna drive a little. And it it actually affects how I drive, right? So if I put on like angry music that's fast beat you know with with mean lyrics or whatever i'm going to drive more aggressively than if i'm listening to you know say some classical or something so and i thought that would be a nice translation over into photography just to see if that if that works and it does so on photo walks you know i'll do that i'll listen to some music or even have if i'm not listening I'll even I'll have a song in my head of you know what my favorite song is and that'll sort of drive even subconsciously what I what the images that I'm capturing are so it's just connecting two senses you know sight and sound. Interesting, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I was just thinking about that. Like for me, um, I kind of want to be concentrating, and I tend to have difficulty if I'm listening to sort of any um, music that has lyrics because. The lyrics kind of hijack my concentration to a certain degree, mm. whereas you know if it's if it's music kind of instrumental, not not necessarily easy listening or whatever, but but just sort of no words, I can sort of feel the music and and still concentrate. But that's everybody's different. But uh, that's an interesting thing. I mean, I might just try it out and see how it works. Yeah. I, I actually work. I mean, this isn't the just kind of riff off of that. I I tend to work to actually uh, a whole bunch of variants of one one song. <laughs> it's that's yeah. it's a Zimbabwean. Uh, um, uh, in bureau, hmm. and the big thing is it sits in the background, uh, and it's it's kind of like the na- national anthem of it. it's called Neiman Sasa, and uh, it uh, it is uh, uh, it's the, the translation is basically gathering branches for a temporary shelter. But it's so if you search for the web, you'll you'll find it. But there's a whole bunch of versions of it. But the main thing is, is it's just really nice. Sits in the background, and I can listen to it for hours. You know, without. You know, and by having a bunch of different versions, I've like nine or I've collected nine or ten different versions on iTunes, and so um, I can, um, uh, you know, it doesn't sound like the same thing over and over and over again because it's only like a little ten minute piece. 
but um you know the, a lot of that kind of stuff that that kind of basic instrumental stuff works great for me in the background to kind of uh, when i'm working in general um but also uh, when i'm you know doing this kind of stuff to kind of keep myself you know yeah. balanced like I, you know when you're on the computer editing that's kind of a different space and i know like in the dark room you you kids are too um, too young to remember <laughs> hey speak for yourself you know you used to <laughs> and and there's like a, a long tradition of music and photography i mean eugene smith was uh he recorded all that he used to live in a loft in new york city where all these amazing jazz musicians uh were were performing he would he he actually recorded and 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 I don't know if you heard about that, but uh, there there was a, kind of an anthology of his recordings that came out. All these amazing jazz players. Uh, he was very much into the music, but uh, yeah, music is a universal language. Photography is a universal language, so it kind of makes sense that maybe they can work together. I know yeah, when I... you're when you're showing pictures like on, on a slideshow, etc., they can be powerful to. Oh, yeah. to change the mood i made a i pulled an all-nighter when i was in the year i was the head of the yearbook you know the i was the darkroom head in high school and i pulled an all-nighter and and uh, printed 130 photos you know uh-huh. over about an 18 hour period uh-huh. and um and i was listening to i only had one tape and it, it was stings nothing like the sun and uh depeche mode music for the masses on the other side oh, nice. <laughs> and if i listen to either one of those albums i can still smell dectol <laughs> see it's wired up your brain look at that yeah it totally i mean it's just immediately just i can any one of those songs like I, the deck tall just comes right back into my nose right. look at that. see look at that tip see the music photographically all right uh, uh here's the the picks of the week segment this is one of my favorite segments so this is where each guest can give a pick and it can be software hardware a workshop whatever as long as it's related to photography ron brinkman what's your pick <laughs> my pick is some tape. You did that last. You you've done that before. It was uh, no, it was Gaffer's tape. tape. I think did you I? picked Gaffer's tape. Yes. All right. Well, I'm, I'm I wanted to pick Gaffer's tape. Gaffer's tape, <laughs> <laughs> Gaffer's tape is great. And uh, so you know, here's the thing: when you're shooting photos, be it out in the field or you know even in a studio, you're constantly kind of improvising. You know, you've got some idea where you want to put the camera somewhere different or something just not working. And you kind of need to wire something up to something else. And gaffer's tape is great because it's sort of uh, it's quick. It's not super sticky, uh, so you can kind of take it off, and it doesn't leave a residue. But it's not that strong. Um, but I don't like using duct tape for certain things because it leaves sticky residue on every everything. But there's this tape called uh, silicone tape, the self-fusing silicone tape. And I, I have a brand that's called F4. Uh, it's really amazing stuff. It's basically it, it only sticks to itself. And it's this kind of, it sort of has a consistency of a electrical tape, if you're familiar with that. And, and it is insulated, so you can use it if you're doing, you know, wiring something up and then you want to wrap it. But unlike electrical tape, which has this horrible sticky stuff that gets everywhere and eventually fades out over time, this silicone tape only sticks to itself. But it does it almost instantly. And, and it's sort of, it's almost as if you just kind of poured liquid rubber around something and then it just kind of sealed. And... Uh, it's just it's just interesting. So I've used it to kind of like uh, uh, tape a camera to uh, a fence post, for instance, where you know you wouldn't want to do it with duct tape because your camera would be terrible. Uh, but this thing, it's it's good. It's solid. It's waterproof, uh, and you can just cut it off when you're done. It leaves no residue because the only thing it's going to stick to is itself. It's not super cheap. It's like I don't know, fifteen bucks for a roll. That's not a particularly long roll, but when you need it, it's just a really handy thing. It's also a handy thing to have in the car. You can use it to to 
fix your your hoses or something in the car too. But anyway, just a useful thing to have in your sort of bigger camera bag. Uh, not not the one that you're carrying around everywhere necessarily, but the one that sort of has the everything you need. Um, but F F4 is the brand. It's just F4 self. Did you, did you see why it's called at F4? I, I think it is a military. Uh, it was it, it was named after the F4 because it was extensively used on the F4 Phantom. Yeah, that was my favorite jet of all time. We had one of those outside of our well, a staged one outside of our barracks in uh, at Lackland Air Force Base. Love that jet. Yeah, I think this this did originally originate as as a military tool because it's you know it's waterproof, it's uh, it's insulated, so you can put it around electrical components, uh, and and it's just it's. I don't know. There's nothing quite like it. So, and, you know, even if you're doing little electrical projects, like I, I, I would often use shrink wrap kind of stuff. I don't know if you guys have ever played with that, where you kind of have to have a little heat gun or a, a hair dryer, and it kind of shrinks the yep. the plastic thing around. You can just use this tape instead because it just sort of clings to itself, and then and once it sticks, it's stuck. You can't get it apart. I mean, it really bonds with itself, and it becomes just a seamless plastic kind of a, a coating. That's cool. That's awesome. Sounds sounds very James Bondy. I like it. It's pretty handy. <laughs> All right, Alex, what's your what's your pick? So I want to do one pick that's a little bit of a riff off of what what um, Ron just said. The other the other <laughs> tape that you would get if you're given a collection of tape, yes, don't really you're not going to use a lot. I mean, you might want to have duct tape or or gorilla tape or whatever for things that you never want to have. You never want to pull apart. And then you have your right. gaffer's tape, and then you have your F four tape. And the other thing to think about is paper tape. You know, like white paper tape. So we mm-hmm. have rolls of this, and you don't think it's important until you have it. Um, the big thing is is that. Gaffer's tape still leaves a little bit of a residue, and it'll still pull paint. Um, right. And uh, paper tape is kind of the, a lighter version of that. And uh, and what it'll do is you can, um, with paper tape, you can put it on things, and you really won't leave a residue at all. And we use it to label things. So label, you know, labeling equipment or whatever for that shoot. So, like, it's, it's a very, like, we just have these little rolls of, of uh, half-inch tape. And, for instance, on a video mixer, we'll run it under all the channels and then write on it and then we'll just pull it off at the end of the show. Um, but if there's, there's lots of little things that you want to label really quickly. And, and getting this white paper tape, it's not masking tape because that will still leave goop. Um, but it's this white paper tape that you, you can just put on stuff and then label it for, your, for that specific event and then just pull it off at the end. Um, and it's kind of this nice, like, uh, you know, temporary uh, board, um, that you can, um, that you can use. And I, and I, it's just a really, like, again, it's one of those things that you, um, you don't think is important until you start to use it. And then you can't believe that you, um, didn't have it all the time, you know? And so it's only white paper tape, but what I was really going to, uh, recommend was the Kata reflex, uh, E carrying strap, which Uh-oh. comes with a lot of the bags. Have you, do you guys have those? I do. Yeah. I, I, so, yeah, I have a Kata bag, but I don't have that strap. No, for some reason, it always comes with the bags that I got. I don't know why, but, but, but I realized I was borrowing somebody else's camera that came with the, you know, like the Canon uh, strap, mm-hmm. and I realized how much I missed it. <laughs> so, so it was, you know, and so here's what's great about it is one of the things is, is that it's just comfortable. It's neoprene, and you know, moving away from the strap that comes with your SLR is a is a really a good thing because those are cheap. And um, they're not very comfortable over long periods of time. Uh, the neoprene is a lot more. Uh, it's a you know this isn't expensive. This is a thirteen dollar you know uh, investment in your camera. So there's a lot of other straps, and you can get there. And I, we've recommended other straps that are really specialist. But if you just want to get something that just makes it life a little bit better, um, it's got two little pockets on either end that happen to be just big enough to put a couple batteries or more important, like a, like on one pocket, I usually have an extra battery. 
And on the other one, I have um, one or two extra compact flashes. So I don't want to carry a bag. I just want to know that I have a battery and I have, I have a couple extra, you know, uh, rolls of film, so to speak. Uh, and I'm just, then I'm going to walk around town. Uh, it's a great thing that it just has these two little pockets that hold it and it's nice and comfortable and it's not very expensive, $13 on, on Amazon or whatever. So anyway, it's the Kata Reflex E camera strap. Very cool. All right. Mr. Steve Simon, do you have a uh, pick? Uh, well, further to your tape thing, you know, I'll take a piece of gapper tape and I'll just put it on the inside of my camera bag. So I won't take the whole roll, but I'll use it because uh, some of the new Nikon lenses, and I'm sure the Canons and other lens manufacturers as well, are using those plastic bayonet lens hoods, which inevitably fall off and they're way expensive to replace. So I'll just take a little piece of tape and just make sure that uh, it's taped on as well as bayoneted in so that when I'm bouncing around i i don't lose it and it's it saved me uh, a couple of times uh usually when i'm doing my pick of the week i look around my room <laughs> for something that i could <laughs> recommend but i'll just i'll just say something a little different kind of inspired by alex's prime lens idea and that is um you know when you go out shooting you know go light just take one camera one prime lens if you've got one if you've got a, a, a zoom uh, just keep that zoom racked to either extreme and, and use it that way. It's just, you know, it's less choices, which can be a good thing. You know, when you don't have a lot of options available to you, it, it sort of forces you to move around, explore your subject a little bit differently. And, um, you know, less is more compositionally, but also equipment-wise. I see it all the time, you know, on workshops. People come with giant bags of stuff, weighing them down, and, uh, you know, the photographers that have their eye to the viewfinder, those are the photographers that are going to be getting the pictures. That's very good. Very good. So almost almost use your DSLR like an iPhone camera that's just there, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Thanks, Steve. And uh, finally, my pick is by a frequent TWIP contributor, Nicole Young, also known as Nicole on Twitter. She is coming out with a ebook on micro stock photography. In fact, it will be out by the time you get around to listening to this. So it releases Tuesday. Um, what day of the week is that? So that is Tuesday of next week. What day is that, Alex? The ninth? Uh, that is the 10th. 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 That's the 10th. Oh, 10th. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, no. Oh, no, 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 no. We're in no, June no, no, no. now. That's the 7th. That's the 7th. Yeah. Okay. So Tuesday the 7th uh, of June 2011, Nicole is coming out with a book through Craft and Vision. That's David Dushman's company. Um, and it is on microstock. So I read this ebook. I got a chance to read an early version of it. And it's, it's, it's really, really good. It's, uh, if you are ever interested in microstock photography, um, and wanted somebody to sort of handhold you through what that world is like and how to get good images that will be accepted by the various services and what cameras to all this stuff. It, she goes into basically it's like diving into Nicole's head and, and, you know, or sitting down with her for several hours and just picking her brain about how she got successful in micro stock photography. And the cool thing about it is it's only five bucks. So you could know what you need to know to get started in micro stock photography for five bucks. And I think that's a that's a crazy deal. Plus, it's written by a TWIP contributor. So, you know, mm. how can you go wrong? By the way, Fred, can I just throw out, I mean, you mentioned David Dushman's name. I haven't been on in a while, and you mm -hmm. guys probably talked about it. But uh, just send my uh, best regards out to David, who's a, a great guy. But you you know that he took that bad fall uh, in in um, Italy. Mm -hmm. I think off the, the, was it the Leaning Tower of Pisa? Or, anyway, it was, no, a, it was no, uh, no. off a canal. 
Oh, off a canal. Anyway, it was a serious thing, but I I followed him on Twitter, and it sounds like he's uh, he's doing he's doing good. He's yeah, doing he's, good, he's recovering nicely, and he's tweeting the his whole adventure from the the various surgeries that he had to go through to now. So it's a uh, yeah. If you go back, what's what's his his Twitter handle? Steve, you know, pixelated image, pixelated, pixelated image. Yeah. So pixelated image on Twitter and you can just roll back and read his tweets. And it's a chronology of what happened from the time that he could start tweeting again after falling that distance all the way through to being airlifted back to Canada and being operated on and the recovery and all that good stuff. So it's a, it's it's scary and amazing and a reminder to be careful when you're shooting. Be careful out there, photographers. Yeah. I mean, holy cow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Do not be plunging yourself, you know, I don't know how many feet onto concrete. That is not a good deal. All right, cool. All right, guys, we are at the end of another episode of This Week in Photo. Ron Brinkman, where are you at online? I am mostly on Twitter, I guess. At you, Ron you guess Brinkman. or you're sure? I guess. <laughs> I think that's where I'm at. You know, I've got my digitalcomposting.com blog. But, but it's, it's a cobweb blog, isn't it? Come on. Uh, it was updated about two weeks ago. There was a little post. That's so cobweb. It, that's cobweb. Yeah, yeah. That's about my, about my speed. <laughs> so, yeah, right. find me on Twitter. Awesome. And Steve Simon, where are you at online? Uh, Twitter slash Steve Simon. And I'm um, going to be doing some Nikonians workshops in my uh, where I used to live, where my mom and sister live, in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Looking forward to it uh, June 23 to 26. So you can find that at Nikonians Academy. Org, I think. Very cool. And Mr. Alex Lindsay, where are you at online? Uh, I'm on the Twitters, Alex Lindsay, all one word. And uh, also you can see some of the photos that I shot in Tanzania at BorderSAC. Uh, that's uh, bordersac.com. Very cool. And if you'd like to keep up with everything in the TWIP universe, you can just head over to thisweekinphoto.com. There you'll find links to our Facebook fan page or Twitter page and more. And if you haven't already, grab your copy of our free 10 Twip Tips ebook, and you can find that at thisweekinphoto.com slash ebook. And finally, if you're looking for me, Frederick Van Johnson, you can check out my blog at frederickvan.com or follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash frederickvan. And with that, it is time to take that lens cap off. <laughs> This Week in Photo is a PixelCore.tv production, produced by Suzanne Llewellyn, with technical producers John Riley and Alutha Jamakar.